Book Four, Chapter Six of the Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Four, Chapter Six. Our Blaster Again. When Dick and Lawless were suffered to steal, by a back way, out of the house where Lord Risingham held his garrison, the evening had already come. They paused in shelter of the garden wall to consult on their best course. The danger was extreme. If one of Sir Daniel's men caught sight of them and raised the view halloo, they would be run down and butchered instantly. And not only was the town of Shoreby a mere net of peril for their lives, but to make for the open country was to run the risk of the patrols. A little way off, upon some open ground, they spied a windmill standing, and hard by that a very large granary with open doors. "'How if we lay there until the night fall?' Dick proposed. And Lawless, having no better suggestion to offer, they made a straight push for the granary at a run, and concealed themselves behind the door among some straw. The daylight rapidly departed, and presently the moon was silvering the frozen snow. Now or never was their opportunity to gain the goat and bagpipes unobserved, and change their tell-tale garments. Yet even then it was advisable to go round by the outskirts, and not run the gauntlet of the market-place, where in the concourse of people they stood the more imminent peril to be recognized and slain. This course was a long one. It took them not far from the house by the beach, now lying dark and silent, and brought them forth at last by the margin of the harbour. Many of the ships, as they could see by the clear moonshine, had weighed anchor, and, profiting by the calm sky, proceeded for more distant parts. Answerably to this, the rude alehouses along the beach, although in defiance of the curfew law, they still shone with fire and candle, were no longer thronged with customers, and no longer echoed to the chorus of sea-songs. Hastily, half-running, with their monkish raiment kilted to the knee, they plunged through the deep snow and threaded the labyrinth of marine lumber, and they were already more than halfway round the harbour when, as they were passing close before an alehouse, the door suddenly opened and let out a gush of light upon their fleeting figures. Instantly they stopped, and made believe to be engaged in earnest conversation. Three men, one after another, came out of the alehouse, and the last closed the door behind him. All three were unsteady upon their feet, as if they had passed the day in deep potations, and they now stood wavering in the moonlight, like men who knew not what they would be after. The tallest of the three was talking in a loud, lamentable voice. Seven pieces of as good Gascony as ever a tapster broached,' he was saying. "'The best ship out of the port of Dartmouth, a Virgin Mary parcel gilt, thirteen pounds of good gold money.' "'I have bad losses, too,' interrupted one of the others. "'I have had losses of mine own, gossip Arblaster. I was robbed at Martinmas of five shillings and a leather wallet well worth ninepence farthing. Dick's heart smote him at what he heard. 
Until that moment he had not perhaps thought twice of the poor skipper who had been ruined by the loss of the Good Hope. So careless, in those days, were men who wore arms, of the goods and interests of their inferiors. But this sudden encounter reminded him sharply of the high-handed manner and ill ending of his enterprise, and both he and Lawless turned their heads the other way, to avoid the chance of recognition. The ship's dog had, however, made his escape from the wreck, and found his way back again to Shoreby. He was now at Arblaster's heels, and suddenly sniffing and pricking his ears, he darted forward and began to bark furiously at the two sham friars. His master unsteadily followed him. "'Hey, shipmates!' he cried. "'Have ye ever a penny-pie for a poor old shipman, clean destroyed by pirates? I am a man that would have paid for you both a Thursday morning, and now here I be, a Saturday night, begging for a flagon of ale. Ask my man Tom if ye missed out me. Seven pieces of good Gascon wine, a ship that was mine own, and was my father's before me. A blessed Mary of plain tree wood and parcel gilt, and thirteen pounds in gold and silver. Hey, what say ye? A man that fought the French, too, for I have fought the French. I have cut more French throats upon the high seas than ever a man that sails out of Dartmouth. Come, a penny piece. Neither Dick nor Lawless durst answer him a word, lest he should recognize their voices, and they stood there as helpless as a ship ashore, not knowing where to turn or what to hope. Are ye dumb, boy? inquired the skipper. Mates, he added with a hiccup, they be dumb. I like not this manner of discourtesy. For an a man be dumb, so be as he's courteous, he will still speak when he was spoken to, methinks. By this time the sailor, Tom, who was a man of great personal strength, seemed to have conceived some suspicion of these two speechless figures, and being soberer than his captain, stepped suddenly before him, took Lawless roughly by the shoulder, and asked him with an oath what ailed him that he held his tongue. To this the outlaw, thinking all was over, made answer by a wrestling feint that stretched the sailor on the sand, and, calling upon Dick to follow him, took to his heels among the lumber. The affair passed in a second. Before Dick could run at all, Arblaster had him in his arms. Tom, crawling on his face, had caught him by one foot, and the third man had a drawn cutlass brandishing above his head. It was not so much the danger, it was not so much the annoyance, that now bowed down the spirits of young Shelton. It was the profound humiliation to have escaped Sir Daniel, convinced Lord Risingham, and now fall helpless in the hands of this old drunken sailor, and not merely helpless, but, as his conscience loudly told him when it was too late, actually guilty, actually the bankrupt debtor of the man whose ship he had stolen and lost. "'Bring him back into the alehouse till I see his face,' said Arblaster. "'Nay, nay,' returned Tom, "'but let us first unload his wallet.' lest the other lads cry share. But though he was searched from head to foot, not a penny was found upon him, nothing but Lord Foxham's signet, which they plucked savagely from his finger. 
"'Turn me him to the moon,' said the skipper, and taking Dick by the chin, he cruelly jerked his head into the air. "'Blessed virgin!' he cried. "'It is the pirate!' "'Hey!' cried Tom. "'By the virgin of Bordeaux, it is the man himself!' repeated Arblaster. "'What, sea-thief, do I hold you?' he cried. "'Where is my ship?' Where is my wine? Hey, have I you in my hands? Tom, give me one end of a cord here. I will so trust me this sea-thief, hand and foot together, like a basting turkey. Mary, I will so bind him up, and thereafter I will so beat, so beat him. And so he ran on winding the cord meanwhile about dick's limbs with the dexterity peculiar to seamen and at every turn and cross securing it with a knot and tightening the whole fabric with a savage pull when he had done the lad was a mere package in his hands as helpless as the dead the skipper held him at arm's length and laughed aloud then he fetched him a stunning buffet on the ear and then turned him about and furiously kicked and kicked him Anger rose up in Dick's bosom like a storm. Anger strangled him, and he thought to have died. But when the sailor, tired of this cruel play, dropped him all his length upon the sand, and turned to consult with his companions, he instantly regained command of his temper. Here was a momentary respite. Ere they began again to torture him, he might have found some method to escape from this degrading and fatal misadventure. Presently, sure enough, and while his captors were still discussing what to do with him, he took heart of grace, and, with a pretty steady voice, addressed them. "'My masters,' he began, "'are ye gone clean foolish? Here hath heaven put into your hands as pretty an occasion to grow rich as ever shipmen had, such as ye might make thirty oversea adventures and not find again. And by the mass I what do ye?' beat me nay so would an angry child but for long-headed tarjans that fear not fire nor water and that love gold as they love beef methinks ye are not wise ay said tom now you are trust you would cozen us cozen you repeated dick nay if ye be fools it would be easy but if ye be shrewd fellows as i trow ye are you can see plainly where your interest lies. When I took your ship from you, we were many, we were well clad and armed. But now, bethink you a little, who mustered that array? One incontestably that hath much gold. And if he, being already rich, continueth to hunt after more even in the face of storms, bethink you once more, shall there not be a treasure somewhere hidden? "'What meaneth he?' asked one of the men. "'Why, if ye have lost an old skiff and a few jugs of vinegary wine,' continued Dick, "'forget them for the trash they are, and do ye rather buckle to an adventure worth the name, that shall in twelve hours make or mar you for ever. But take me up from where I lie, and let us go somewhere near at hand and talk across a flagon, for I am sore and frozen.' and my mouth is half among the snow. "'He seeks but to cozen us,' said Tom, contemptuously. 
"'Cousin, cousin!' cried the third man. "'I would I could see the man that could cousin me. "'He were a cousiner indeed. "'Nay, I was not born yesterday. "'I can see a church when it hath a steeple on it. "'And, for my part, gossip Arblaster, "'methinks there is some sense in this young man. "'Shall we go hear him, indeed? "'Say, shall we go hear him?' "'I would look gladly on a pottle of strong ale, good Master Pierret,' returned Arblaster. "'How say ye, Tom? But then the wallet is empty.' "'I will pay,' said the other. "'I will pay. I would fain see this matter out. I do believe upon my conscience there is gold in it.' "'Nay, if you get again to drinking, all is lost,' cried Tom. "'Gossip, Arblaster, you suffer your fellow to have too much liberty,' returned Master Perret. "'Would you be led by a hired man? Fie, fie!' "'Peace, fellow,' said Arblaster, addressing Tom. "'Will you put your oar in? Truly a fine pass when the crew is to correct the skipper.' "'Well, then, go your way,' said Tom. "'I wash my hands of you.' "'Set him then upon his feet,' said Master Perret. "'I know a privy place where we may drink and discourse.' "'If I am to walk, my friends, you must set my feet at liberty,' said Dick, when he had once more been planted upright like a post. "'He saith true,' laughed Perret. "'Truly he could not walk accoutred as he is. "'Give it a slit. Out with your knife and slit it, gossip.' Even Arblaster paused at this proposal, but as his companion continued to insist, and Dick had the sense to keep the merest wooden indifference of expression, and only shrugged his shoulders over the delay, the skipper consented at last, and cut the cords which tied his prisoner's feet and legs. Not only did this enable Dick to walk, but the whole network of his bonds being proportionately loosened, he felt the arm behind his back begin to move more freely, and could hope, with time and trouble, to entirely disengage it. So much he owed already to the owlish silliness and greed of Master Perret. That worthy now assumed the lead, and conducted them to the very same rude alehouse where Lawless had taken Arblaster on the day of the gale. It was now quite deserted, the fire was a pile of red embers, radiating the most ardent heat, and when they had chosen their places, and the landlord had set before them a measure of mulled ale, both Pierret and Arblaster stretched forth their legs, and squared their elbows like men bent upon a pleasant hour. The table at which they sat, like all the others in the alehouse, consisted of a heavy square board, set on a pair of barrels and each of the four curiously assorted cronies sat at one side of the square, Pierret facing Arblaster, and Dick opposite to the common sailor. "'And now, young man,' said Pierret, "'to your tale. It doth appear, indeed, that you have somewhat abused our gossip Arblaster, but what then? Make it up to him. Show him but this chance to become wealthy, and I will go pledge he will forgive you.' So far Dick had spoken pretty much at random, but it was now necessary, under the supervision of six eyes, to invent and tell some marvellous story, and, if it were possible, 
get back into his hands the all-important signet. To squander time was the first necessity. The longer his stay lasted, the more would his captors drink, and the surer should he be when he attempted his escape. Well, Dick was not much of an inventor, and what he told was pretty much the tale of Ali Baba, with Shoreby and Tunstall Forest substituted for the East, and the treasures of the cavern rather exaggerated than diminished. As the reader is aware, it is an excellent story, and has but one drawback, that it is not true, and so, as these three simple shipmen now heard it for the first time, their eyes stood out of their faces, and their mouths gaped like codfish at a fishmonger's. Pretty soon a second measure of mulled ale was called for, and while Dick was still artfully spinning out the incidents, a third followed the second. Here was the position of the parties towards the end. Our blaster, three parts drunk and one half asleep, hung helpless on his stool. Even Tom had been much delighted with the tale, and his vigilance had abated in proportion. Meanwhile Dick had gradually wormed his right arm clear of its bonds, and was ready to risk all. "'And so,' said Puret, "'you are one of these?' "'I was made so,' replied Dick, "'against my will. But an I could but get a sack or two of gold coin to my share, I should be a fool indeed to continue dwelling in a filthy cave, and standing shot and buffet like a soldier.' Here be we four. Good. Let us then go forth into the forest to-morrow ere the sun be up. Could we come honestly by a donkey, it were better. But an we cannot, we have our four strong backs, and I warrant me we shall come home staggering. Puret licked his lips. And this magic, he said, this password, whereby the cave is opened. How call ye it, friend? "'Nay, none know the word but the three chiefs,' returned Dick. "'But here is your great good fortune, that on this very evening I should be the bearer of a spell to open it. It is a thing not trusted twice a year beyond the captain's wallet.' "'A spell!' said Arblaster, half awakening, and squinting upon Dick with one eye. "'Aroite! No spells! I be a good Christian!' Ask my men Tom else. Nay, but this is white magic, said Dick. It doth not with the devil, only the powers of numbers, herbs, and planets. Ay, ay, said Perret. Tis but white magic, gossip. There is no sin therein, I do assure you. But proceed, good youth. This spell, in what should it consist? "'Nay, that I will incontinently show you,' answered Dick. "'Have you there the ring you took from my finger? "'Good. Now hold it forth before you by the extreme finger-ends, "'at the arm's length, and over against the shining of these embers. "'Tis so exactly. Thus, then, is the spell.' With a haggard glance, Dick saw the coast was clear between him and the door. He put up an internal prayer. Then, whipping forth his arm, he made but one snatch of the ring, and at the same instant, levering up the table, he sent it bodily over upon the seaman Tom. He, poor soul, 
went down bawling under the ruins, and before Arblaster understood that anything was wrong, or Perret could collect his dazzled wits, Dick had run to the door and escaped into the moonlit night. The moon, which now rode in the mid-heavens, and the extreme whiteness of the snow, made the open ground about the harbour bright as day, and young Shelton leaping, with kilted robe, among the lumber, was a conspicuous figure from afar. Tom and Perret followed him with shouts. From every drinking-shop there were joined by others whom their cries aroused, and presently a whole fleet of sailors was in full pursuit. But Jack Ashore was a bad runner, even in the fifteenth century, and Dick, besides, had a start, which he rapidly improved, until, as he drew near the entrance of a narrow lane, he even paused and looked laughingly behind him. Upon the white floor of snow all the shipmen of Shoreby came clustering in an inky mass, and tailing out rearward in isolated clumps. Every man was shouting or screaming, every man was gesticulating with both arms in air. Someone was continually falling, and to complete the picture, when one fell, a dozen would fall upon the top of him. The confused mass of sound which they rolled up as high as to the moon was partly comical, and partly terrifying to the fugitive whom they were hunting. In itself it was impotent, for he made sure no seaman in the port could run him down. But the mere volume of noise, in so far as it must awake all the sleepers in Shoreby, and bring all the skulking sentries to the street, did really threaten him with danger in the front. So, spying a dark doorway at a corner, he whipped briskly into it, and let the uncouth hunt go by him still shouting and gesticulating, and all red with hurry and white with tumbles in the snow. It was a long while, indeed, before this great invasion of the town by the harbour came to an end, and it was long before silence was restored. For long, lost sailors were still to be heard pounding and shouting through the streets in all directions and in every quarter of the town. Quarrels followed, sometimes among themselves, sometimes with the men of the patrols, Knives were drawn, blows given and received, and more than one dead body remained behind upon the snow. When, a full hour later, the last seaman returned grumblingly to the harbour-side and his particular tavern, it may fairly be questioned if he had ever known what manner of man he was pursuing, but it was absolutely sure that he had now forgotten. By next morning there were many strange stories flying and a little while after, the legend of the devil's nocturnal visit was an article of faith with all the lads of Shoreby. But the return of the last seaman did not, even yet, set free young Shelton from his cold imprisonment in the doorway. For some time after, there was a great activity of patrols, and special parties came forth to make the round of the place, and report to one or other of the great lords, whose slumbers had been thus unusually broken. The night was already well spent before Dick ventured from his hiding-place and came, safe and sound, but aching with cold and bruises, to the door of the goat and bagpipes. As the law required, there was neither fire nor candle in the house, but he groped his way into a corner of the icy guest-room, found an end of a blanket, which he hitched around his shoulders, and creeping close to the nearest sleeper, was soon lost in slumber. End of chapter.